Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today we have Dr. David Rabin, MD, PhD, and board-certified psychiatrist. He recently created a smart wearable device that uses tactile stimulation to manage chronic stress and regulate emotion. The company he co-founded to market the device is called Apollo Neuroscience. David has a research and clinical background focused on new interventions for PTSD and related disorders, including psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So as you could imagine, it's a pretty fascinating topic. So the first third of the conversation is about that. And then we move on to the technology that David is developing with his startup. Without further ado, Dr. David Rabin. All right. Well, it's really great to see you. I don't think we've ever even spoken face to face, but um, no, we haven't. This is cool. And how do you say your last name, by the way? Rabin. Rabin. Oh, I've been saying it wrong. Oh, it's okay. Everybody does. Um, it's like it's the Americanized version of Rabin. Okay. Um, it's like Robin with a hard A. Okay. Well, so you have a really interesting intellectual background. I'd just love if you could briefly summarize all of the different things you've been up to. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I am a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I've been studying the effects of chronic stress on the body uh, and resilience for the last almost 15 years or so, uh, looking at what kinds of stress makes some of us better and why do some of us grow and, and get better with stress and why do some of us succumb to stress and become sick or ill or uh, impaired in some way. And the most common example that we see of this is in physical and mental illness. So as a psychiatrist, I mostly clinically see substance use disorders, treatment-resistant PTSD, depression, and anxiety disorders. Uh, and these are people who have typically already failed two or more gold standard treatment courses, and they failed to sustain symptom remission. So after trying two or more Western treatments that have been recommended by the clinical guidelines for treatment, these people are still not getting better sufficiently. And so what's really interesting about that is this number of people who fall into this treatment-resistant category, particularly in the U.S., is growing substantially to the point where with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, it's higher than 50% of people are becoming designated as resistant to Western treatments, which is a big problem. And we have more and more people all the time, particularly with military situations, getting diagnosed with this illness, but also people in non-military situations. And we don't have good treatments for these, these conditions. But What's interesting is that people find their own ways to treat their symptoms mm -hmm. from talking to my patients and from studying the literature of PTSD and, and sort of finding out what people do to help themselves feel better. It really interestingly converged in this idea that I think you're very familiar with, which is this feeling of safety that you get from different sensory experiences like soothing touch, soothing music, regular exercise and taking care of yourself, getting good rest and sleep personal, empathetic, uh, listening relationships. I ended up through learning quite a bit from my patients themselves. I actually pursued that. And then we started mapping out the touch pathway and figuring out ways to try to, um, through neuroscience research, provide the benefits of safety to people on the go. So, so what are these treatments that are typically used that aren't working for 50% of people? So the standard of care typically for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, things like SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, Zoloft and Prozac are very common. And those are to treat the mood and anxiety symptoms of PTSD. Most commonly, the issue with those medicines is that people find them numbing. Um, and so the side effects can be intolerable. 
And, you know, they can cause stomach upset, decreased sexuality and libido, decreased ability to achieve orgasm and sort of numbing of the of the negatives. So it dulls the negatives, but also dulls the positives. Mm-hmm. And so people report feeling kind of blah or, or, or dulled. Those treatments have been around for PTSD probably for 15 or 20 years, maybe longer, but they're not hitting the core of the problem. Um, we have a bunch of other medicines that now have been used, things like benzodiazepines, which target the aggression, the um, overactive fear and threat response, things like beta blockers, which are cardiac medicines used to treat. Uh, benzodiazepines are traditionally used to treat seizures, by the way, um, in an acute setting. And uh, beta blockers are used to treat high blood pressure and cardiac heart failure and things of that nature. All of these things are basically reducing the overactivation of the stress response system. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that if you have had trauma, either one or many traumas, which we can call trauma as one or many intense, meaningful, negative experiences over time, then these experiences trigger the stress response system in our bodies to be overactive because we're always perceiving threat in our environment, either from ourselves or from things in our environment that don't make us feel safe. And so safety becomes a very powerful technique and techniques like deep breathing on soothing touch and haptic stimulation become very powerful at helping us access safety states more effectively, uh, which can be very difficult. That's interesting. So, well, I'm peripherally aware of all of this. So I'm no expert at all. I, I understood, though, that the latest trend in treating this type of chronic stress was to combine pharmacological approaches with cognitive behavioral therapy. Do you have experience with that? Is that a promising avenue as well? Yeah, absolutely. You hit it right on in that the best treatments that we have available right now that are, are treatments that are what we call like multi-modality treatments. So they combine psychotherapy and thought and behavior practices with medicine treatments in the environment and they reinforce each other. I think the issue is that the therapy component, which in PTSD, most of what we use is called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, it's very effective when it's practiced. But the caveat when it's practiced is a big thing because it's very difficult to practice. It just requires an incredible amount of discipline and time and effort. And it can be very difficult to engage in if you're already really stressed out or threatened. And so part of the role of the therapist is to really help establish a sense of safety with the patient so that they feel safe enough to engage in these treatments and really make that change. But the problem is they leave the office and they go home and then they don't feel safe anymore. And it becomes difficult for them to continuously engage in and practice these techniques, but they do work. Um, the problem is scaling mm-hmm. and accessibility. It could take a couple of years of these treatments to really achieve sustained remission. Um, and it requires again, an enormous amount of effort and practice and time. And so I'm working, for example, with the MAPS phase three MDMA trial for PTSD, MDMA being uh, 3,4-methylene dioxymethamphetamine, which is a compound of the methamphetamine family that comes from sassafras originally. And it was discovered in the early 20th century and rediscovered in the latter half to be the most powerful and pathogenic agent that we know of. So it radically chemically stimulates the part of the brain that's called the insula, that increases safety responses. It increases interoception, feeling our bodies, Mm -hmm. introspection, looking inside ourselves, and empathy, feeling others, putting ourselves in other people's shoes. All of those parts of our bodies, of our brains, are incredibly important for healing, but we can't access them when we don't feel safe. And so MDMA was the first molecule discovered to show 
that it can reliably biochemically increase the safety activity in the safety pathway, which we see now in mice and humans as inhibiting the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, which we many people will call like the reptilian brain responsible for fear, sexual drive and eating and things like that, the fundamental stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it inhibits activity in that and that amygdala is overactive all the time in people who have disorders of anxiety, PTSD and, and chronic mental illness. And, and likely we're starting to see things like insomnia, chronic insomnia and chronic pain. Also, those people have an overactive amygdala. And so MDMA fascinatingly was the first chemical that was found to selectively target this part of the brain. Mm. And now that that chemical is in phase three trials with the FDA and it's been found to be the most effective drug treatment for PTSD, where five years out, people who have been treatment resistant for 17 years are uh, 67% of them are symptom free at five years out. That's amazing. With just three doses of medicine and 12 weeks of therapy. Yeah. So it's really, we're starting to figure out new ways as you know, to accelerate the process using these combined treatment strategies. So, yeah, I read about your background and your, your involvement in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and it's a really interesting area. That's also very new and kind of revolutionary. You know, that whole world is transitioning from something that was kind of socially unacceptable and scientifically unacceptable to something that is being recognized as having a lot of potential to help people. And I'm just wondering about your experience living that world. Have you had to fight to get the respect for this type of psychotherapy? And how involved have you been in kind of the reframing of of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy? That's a great question. I think that it has been a huge challenge over the last several decades to get these medicines respected in the medical community as powerful strategies for treatment. Uh, But I think, you know, again, it's important to look back to the way that these were originally developed historically, because, you know, we can go back thousands of years to psilocybin mushrooms and peyote mescaline containing cacti and ayahuasca from the jungle in, in the Amazon. And when you actually talk to these tribal people, They don't have a Western medicine background, but they still use the word trauma to describe what these medicines are treating, Mm. which is very interesting. Their definition of trauma is slightly different than ours, but it's similar enough. When you move forward and you look at the discovery of MDMA, the discovery of LSD, the discovery of some of these other compounds that are psychoactive, what we're finding is that they also are extremely effective at treating trauma. So my role in studying them has been more from a mechanistic perspective Mm -hmm. and less from an advocacy perspective, because I think that thankfully, based on the timing of my entry into the field, most of the foundational advocacy work to get the studies through had already been done, which I am incredibly grateful for. And my colleagues have done so much work, Rick Doblin, Mike and Annie Mithoffer, Phil Wilson, you know, all the people and so many others who have put together incredible bodies of literature and um, run incredible studies since the 50s to show that these medicines can be used safely and effectively. They really laid the groundwork. uh, And a lot of it has just been maintaining open-mindedness in the community and making sure, at least with my colleagues, they don't usually say no. They usually just don't know. Mm. And because there's so much literature, there's so much information to constantly stay up to date on. And for them, if they don't know, you know, we're taught to be extra conservative as doctors and just say, okay, let's wait, you know, let's wait on it if we don't know. But I think ultimately, based on what's happening in mental health right now, with people becoming more and more treatment resistant to the 
treatments that we do have available, we need alternatives. We're desperate for safe alternatives. And it looks like from the studies so far that things like MDMA and psilocybin are, are not only much more safe than some of the other medicines out there and that they produce less harmful side effects when used properly in the clinical setting, but they also work better. Mm-hmm. And so now we finally are in a very special time where there's enough clinical evidence that's surrounding these medicines from many different studies that it makes my job a lot easier and it allows me to come in with my colleagues and say, you know, we're mechanism people, we're science, we're, we, we're doctors, but we're also hardcore molecular and genetic scientists. We want to figure out how all of these medicines work and why there is a paradigm shift. And, and what is the paradigm shift between medicines like what we use in Western medicine, where, you know, you're told to take one or many medicines multiple times a day, usually, or the paradigm we're seeing with, with psychedelic medicine like MDMA and psilocybin, where you take three doses over the course of three months, and then you're done mm-hmm. for life potentially, mm-hmm. right? Two totally different paradigms. Yeah. So how do we combine the best of both to give our patients and the general public the benefit of that knowledge? Yeah. yeah and I'm thinking about other ones too. Like, I think you're involved in, is it advocacy or just the medicine of cannabis? You, you started something called the Board of Medicine recently. What is that all about? So that's very interesting. So the Board of Medicine. So over the last several years, I've interviewed probably, and I think this goes back to the last question you're talking about, is about, I've interviewed probably over 400 doctors and healthcare uh, providers because I grew up in San Francisco. And while I was totally disconnected from any kind of plant medicine or substance scene growing up, I was aware of it. And it was always going on around me because people in high school, you were using it. My friends were using, you know, smoking cannabis and things like this. And it always interested me that cannabis was always thought of as a medicine in the Bay Area where I grew up. Like the this cultural stigma of it was not like, oh, this is a recreational drug of abuse. It was like, this is a plant medicine. And so I think that kind of sat with me and, and I thought a lot about it. And I realized that when we take the Hippocratic Oath, again, the first part of the oath being we swear to do no harm mm-hmm. to our patients, right? To do no harm first. And that's, in fact, what it says. First, do no harm. Primum non nocere in Latin. And so when I thought about that and I thought about that going through that in my own training and then I see the medicines that we prescribe to our patients, what we wind up seeing is this very interesting phenomenon, particularly in mental health, which involves two extremely important statistical factors. One of them is called the number needed to treat. And if you remember nothing about anything else we say, I think this is one of the most important statistics that you could possibly know about in understanding how medicines work. And it's the number needed to treat, which is how many people need to take a medicine or to be involved in a treatment intervention. It could be psychotherapy or a pill. And how many people need to go through that treatment to experience symptom relief, the benefits of that treatment. And then the other number is number needed to harm. How many people need to be exposed to a treatment to experience a harmful side effect. And what's really fascinating about most mental health medicine is that when you really break down the studies, there's a lower number needed to harm than a number needed to treat, which means that you're more likely, if you were to take a mental health medicine, not all of them, but many of them, you're more likely to experience a side effect than you are to experience symptom relief. And that's a big problem because that is the opposite for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So CB, cannabidiol, for instance, is not psychoactive. It has basically no harmful side effects as long as it's you know non-contaminated plant product. It doesn't have any herbicides or pesticides or heavy metals or any of that garbage in there. 
you can't kill yourself with it. You can't overdose. And if you just take too much, it puts you to sleep. And so that has a number needed to harm that is through the roof. You basically cannot hurt yourself with cannabidiol, but the number needed to treat is much lower. So the Board of Medicine was created to pool doctors who were open-minded to new treatments, but who also had a very strong foundation in Western medicine and current treatments to come together and really put together comprehensive clinical guidelines that say for cannabis medicine, eventually for natural uh, nootropics, um, Mm -hmm. and for psychedelic medicine, what is actually the real risk and the real benefit of using this? What does the literature say about how to use it? And then put those into comprehensive clinical guidelines that can be not only taught to doctors and healthcare providers, um, which is a path that every medicine has to go through before it enters into the general community and it's accepted by the medical community, but then also to work with collaborators like Oro, which is a company that we're working with to disseminate that information to the public mm-hmm. in a way that everyone can understand and to try to create a um, faster cycle of knowledge from the doctors and the scientists de- all the way back down to the individuals. I wonder how we got into this like messed up situation. And I'm thinking back and it's like, well, you could say that there was a war on drugs that was politically motivated, probably not scientifically motivated, maybe a little bit irrational and that that played in. But I wonder if there's also another component to this, which is really about that number needed to harm. I mean, if some number of people wind up abusing or misusing the drug in a way that they were not intended to, and that's just kind of the cost of doing business. Once you have it out there and you have thousands of doctors writing prescriptions, like this is going to happen in some cases. I mean, is that part of the story? Is there is there a rational concern about side effects or about addiction or these other negative outcomes? Or is it really just we've all been kind of sleepwalking through this war on drugs and we completely missed this good science in the past? So I, I, so I think it's it's complicated. I think it's a little bit of both. It's mostly that people were scared by what happened in the 70s and the 60s, which was, to your point, in large part due to a lack of education. The medicine got leaked out to the public before people knew how to use it safely. And the problem with that was, and Rick Doblin does an amazing, this is the executive director of MAPS, does an amazing job of telling this story in his TED Talk recently, Uh, In the 60s and 70s, there were probably already 500 peer-reviewed publications on LSD, just to give you an example. And those were publications from Harvard. There were publications from Johns Hopkins. There were publications from great universities in Europe. I mean, this was legit scientific work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And despite all of that, the timing of LSD being leaked out from the lab into the public, and then, of course, subsequently other medicines as well, into the public without the knowledge of how to use them safely and, and properly, uh, was timed very poorly with the Vietnam War. Mm. And so instantly, it all got politicized, you know, and particularly like Timothy Leary's statement of tune in, uh, what, what yeah. is it, you know, turn tune on, in, tune in, drop turn on, yeah. drop out, yeah. right? You know, Timothy Leary was an incredibly influential figure. He had a good point in what he was saying, but the delivery was really off. Mm-hmm. It created a lot of problems for the movement, which really was traditionally scientifically based. And that set us back. And so now, thanks to a lot of hard work from a lot of scientists, we're gradually making it back into the scientific mainstream. And one of the major roles of the board of medicine is to make sure that we don't have a repeat of what happened in the 60s and 70s and that we make sure that we really comprehensively 
anticipate this so that we don't, we don't, you know, it could easily happen again. Mm -hmm. That would really set us back badly. And so, you know, the idea of creating this, these infrastructures with the board and with some of the other not-for-profits we partner with and with things like Apollo and other others is just to, and the scientific evidence from the clinical trials is to really form a foundation that is undeniable. Yeah. Okay. I have to ask because I've been reading about these lately. Ibogaine, ketamine. <laughs> Those are very different. Yeah, they are very different, but they're both, as far as I know, they both have this very high threshold for harm. Mm. I think Ibogaine is the one that's really been found to be very effective for treating addiction, right? Like some people do mm-hmm. it once and then they never stop smoke another cigarette, which is crazy because that's like the hardest addiction right. to kick in some ways. And then ketamine is is a PTSD treatment, right? Are these are these on on your radar at all? Uh, absolutely. Ketamine is interesting in particular because it is the it is currently the only legal psychedelic medicine that you can receive from a doctor hmm. in the presence of a doctor. So a doctor can actually administer ketamine to you. Ketamine is also the most synthetic of the psychoactive compounds. It was the first compound that we actually made completely from scratch. It was a designer molecule. Mm-hmm. And it was a very potent anesthesia medicine. In general, ketamine is actually extremely safe. Many people misuse it recreationally as well, and that creates issues. And people also misuse it in the clinical setting because ketamine isn't as highly regulated as some other medicines. And so it gets prescribed with like nasal sprays and lozenges, which can be good for some people, but ultimately it gets overprescribed and people wind up using them every day for an extended period of time. And that's when you're more likely to have side effects. And the most common side effects from ketamine are actually bladder inflammation and um, what we call hemorrhagic cystitis, which is where your bladder lining becomes inflamed and uh, can be very uncomfortable and painful. Wow. But not, but it's not common. Yeah. And ketamine treatments should be ideally given at most probably every week or two mm. with the goal of gra- of starting at that frequency and then gradually reducing the frequency and tapering off over time in conjunction with psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that ketamine is an anesthesia drug. And so ketamine is being prescribed now 90% in the U.S. by anesthesiologists and internal medicine doctors, not by psychiatrists and not by therapists. And so the psychotherapy component is lost and a lot of people wind up taking it often and probably too often. Mm -hmm. And that's why we start seeing the side effects that we're seeing. But that will change over time as there's more psychotherapy integration and more of these clinics are starting to pop up. Ibogaine is is a different beast. Uh, It comes from an African plant called Iboga. I I have never worked with it personally, but from my colleagues who have worked with it, it is one of the most long-lasting psychedelic experiences in terms of the healing experience. And psychedelic, I should say, since we're talking about these medicines, the word psychedelic is very important to understand because it it doesn't mean crazy 70s dance party. It means mind manifesting, right? And that word was chosen very carefully for these medicines because when people start to work with them, become familiar with them, and you can, if you talk to the tribes people about this, they will tell you the same thing, is that the medicines work to allow us access to our subconscious in a way that we don't necessarily have access to in our day-to-day when we're all egoic and highly functional and working and productive. We're not really thinking about what's going on underneath. And so it allows us to open up that layer that or that barrier between and see underneath and see everything else that's going on in our subconscious and then allow us to pull key things that we learn from our subconscious 
into our conscious day-to-day experience and manifest them right. to actually make something happen that's meaningful. Right. And so that is what we see with Iboga and with ketamine and with ayahuasca and psilocybin and MDMA and LSD and all of these medicines, even cannabis can do this if they're used properly. Mm-hmm. If they're not used properly and the, or they're used very frequently or abused or however you want to to frame it may even have side effects. Iboga is, is very important to be careful of because it actually has cardiac side effects. Wow. And so people who have cardiac conditions are usually not recommended to do Iboga treatment. All right. Nobody do Iboga. Talk to David Rabin first. Or just be very careful. Yeah. Um, so I, I live in LA and there's cannabis like completely flooding the city, right? So is this a yeah. good thing on balance or is this a problem? I mean, you keep hammering this point that people need to use these drugs properly and responsibly. And I'm wondering if the pendulum may be swinging a little bit too far in the other direction. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I agree with you that I think to some extent it is swinging a bit too far in the other direction. And we know that because over time we're starting to see more people have adverse reactions or side effects from cannabis, um, just as an example. Um, you know, cannabis is more available now than it's ever been in the United States. And particularly, and, and, the, and the issue is that due to a lack of education, due to a lack of understanding and due to a lack of connection to the science, to the medical community, guess what products are most popular? They're all high THC products, mm-hmm. right? They're products that are typically grown in a way or produced in a way that maximize the THC, which is the most associative, most psychoactive, most stimulating, most, you know, dissociative part of the, of the cannabis experience, it's not necessarily the most therapeutic part of the cannabis experience. It turns out what we're seeing is that just a little bit of THC with a lot of the other cannabinoids that are in the entourage of, and the terpenes that, you know, there's over 400 active ingredients it's suspected in the average cannabis plant. So when you think about all of that together with a little bit of THC may be actually much more effective than the products you're seeing on the market that have very, very high THC and less of the other stuff. And the very high THC stuff is the stuff that tends to cause the most side effects for people. When teenagers use it, when even young adults use it, those are the people who we see winding up with some of the psychiatric side effects, usually uh, not common, but usually psychosis. And that's the most feared side effect of overuse or misuse of cannabis from a young age. And and it's usually due to high THC products. I think the other thing to mention that's really important along the lines of what you asked is quality control, right? Mm -hmm. So with a lack of education, a lack of standards, and a lack of a system that can enforce product quality and QA and QC, right? Just like the FDA does with regular medicine, prescription medicine, cannabis is also a medicine, where right now it's being treated like a recreational substance. It's being treated like tobacco. There's no regulation. You don't know when you go to an average dispensary whether or not that product you're buying has pesticides, herbicides, uh, contaminants, whether it's genetically modified, whether it's grown organically, and maybe it has a bunch of chemicals that were added to it to make it smell better afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know. Mm-hmm. And if even if they tell you, even if the company or the dispensary tells you that it is safe and pure, you still don't really know because nobody's independently validating that like they do with pharmaceuticals. And so that's a big role of what the board is going to provide, which is independent third-party validation and testing for quality assurance and quality control of cannabis products, starting with CBD 
So that at the very least, when you go into your dispensary, when you order your CBD products online, you know that a doctor has actually evaluated the testing results of this and that it is actually safe. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we can't tell you it's going to work to treat your symptoms, but we can tell you that it's safe to ingest. And once we start to do that, then people will start to use these products more because uh, they'll trust in the products and then they'll give us, they'll be eventually willing to give us some of their data and tell us how it's impacting them. And we'll start to understand how they're working in the body. That's fascinating. You are a busy man. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all, that's all preamble, right? Because actually what you've been up to lately is related and kind of derivative, but very, very different than all of this pharmacological work. So you have recently invented a device that provides external stimulation to a part of the body to manage chronic stress. Can you tell us a little bit about Apollo? Sure. So Apollo is a wearable pod. It's about the size of an Apple Watch. We developed it at the University of Pittsburgh based on a lot of the theory that you and I have been talking about already about chronic stress and PTSD and the way the body manages stress and recovers from stress. And we developed a wearable based on that understanding that delivers these very gentle layered vibrations to the body, either typically through the wrist or the ankle. And these vibrations stimulate the touch receptors in the skin to convey safety to the brain, not dissimilar from somebody you, you like holding your hand or giving you a hug on a bad day. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we decided to do that was because safety is critical to balance out the overactive stress or fear response or threat response that occurs when we are constantly overwhelmed or mm-hmm. constantly stressed. And I think you know, it's important to note people like you and I who are very, very busy, who work in startups or work for big companies, and we're constantly you know, doing podcasts and tons of other things in our lives, people like us need to recover as quickly as possible so that we can always be at our best when it's necessary. Unfortunately, that becomes very difficult the more we add to our plate, the more pings we get and the more Slack messages we get and the more kids we have and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so our bodies were not designed for the way that we work in our society. And we're constantly struggling to cope with the stresses of an overwhelming modernity. And so what helps that? People listening to music helps. People uh, getting massages. People having meaningful relationships with each other helps. Mm -hmm. Because it helps us feel safe and it helps us feel connected. Connection between us is what helps us cope with modernity better than anything else. And what's really interesting is when you start to look at people who are chronically ill, or people who are just chronically stressed out and not sleeping and not feeling good because they're overworked, even the highest performers, what we see is there's now a biometric that changes as a result of that chronic stress, and that's called heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. Heart rate variability is the rate of change of the heartbeat over time. And this is a measure of the balance between the stress response system, the sympathetic fight or flight system, and the and the recovery response system, which is the parasympathetic rest, digest, recover, reproduce, sleep that nervous system that should be active when we're feeling safe and we want to rest and recover, but is oftentimes suppressed by the fear center and the sympathetic system of our brains that constantly perceives that our emails are threatening to us. And so when we start to, to practice activities that rebalance that nervous system, we increase our ability to enter flow states, recovery states, peak performance states more effectively and also our ability to meditate and increase our ability to fall asleep more effectively and get energy when we need it. And these are all skills that we can master with deep breathing. But deep breathing and meditation are extremely difficult to practice, and they can take tens of thousands of hours to master to be able to use those skills in real time. 
So we developed Apollo to provide these gentle vibrations to the body that kind of feel like an ocean wave or feel like a cat purring on your leg or your arm that the body intuitively recognizes as safety signals through the skin. And when it feels those signals, it automatically sends a message to your fear center of your brain that says, hey, I'm not actually running from a lion right now. I'm not actually in an immediate survival threat. And I can take this moment to settle down and to make a better decision about what I'm doing yeah. in any situation. What's interesting about this approach to me also is um, dealing with modernity and the hustle and bustle. Oftentimes where my mind goes is in order to recover from all that, you need to turn everything off and retreat away from it and like right. separate yourself from it. And, you know, you can do that, you know, obviously like taking the weekend to, to recover and to do mm -hmm. something that nurtures your soul, do a hobby, connect with people. Right. That's great. But what Apollo is, as, as I see it, is it's not a rejection of modernity or, or technology. It's actually just saying, okay, well, if we're going to have this like hyper focus on the peak performance side, let's also technologize the, the side that is helping you recover to do that more efficiently too, to close that loop and make it tighter, which is an interesting yes. approach, right? Because it's different from a lot of the, the, the model of like a retreat, which is right. you know, separate from everything. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think the idea being that goes, goes going back to ancient meditative practice and sort of what we think about meditation now, mm -hmm. Western society, when we use the word meditation, the first thing that comes to most people's minds is somebody sitting in a quiet room cross-legged with their hands out receiving or connecting with themselves without mm -hmm. anything else going on outside of day-to-day -day life. Right. When you talk to the actual expert meditators, the traditional Buddhist meditators, the Hindu yogis and monks and some of these people, sure, they encourage that practice of meditation, but they value meditation and mindfulness in the present moment more than anything else. The whole point that they will tell you of practicing sitting meditation outside of the present is so that we can be better at entering meditative states in every single waking moment of our lives. The more mindfully present that we can be in every moment of our lives, the more we are constantly at our peak, the more we are constantly in flow. Imagine being at peak recovery and peak performance, or you know what a lot of people call flow or coherence states. Mm -hmm. Imagine being in that state in every moment of your life right? Yeah. It is actually possible. And that's what the expert meditators have talked about for many years. It just takes a lifetime of practice. Now, with something like this, you can literally put this on your body, on your ankle or your wrist, and it will send vibrations to you that your body recognizes as being similar to the frequencies that it enters with the, in the heart and the lungs when we meditate. And it brings the body into a naturally, mindfully present state automatically. Then you understand intuitively, okay, I was just as stressed out in this moment because of traffic or because of somebody looked at me funny across the table. And then all of a sudden you feel that boost you, safety and you say, wait, and your brain just reminds you, oh, wait, I don't necessarily need to react out of fear right now because mm -hmm. I'm not actually threatened. There's so many ways to describe it, but one of the, my favorite ways to describe it, it's like a moment of pause. It's like true pause. Craziness happens around us all the time. Just press that pause button. Mm -hmm. Oh, like that kind of pause. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then play again and you're back on. Right. <laughs> and by the way, for the people listening at home, uh, you just held up your product, which is awesome. We, we're not doing video on this podcast, so oh. <laughs> um, so it's just audio, but it's cool. It, it looks very sleek. I want to learn more about its design. 
So how are the vibrations designed? I mean, I know that you've done studies on HRV and you've yes. proven that um, HRV is, effect, is affected by this device. Um, and I'm wondering, were the vibration patterns and the location on the body and all of that, was that an iterative design to maximize that effect? Or is this sort of a first attempt and is effective and it could be optimized over time and kind of what's the, what's the design process of the vibration patterns and what was your inspiration there? That's a really great question. And I think that my, my primary inspiration, there were many, you know, many of them we talked about already, my patients, MDMA therapy, understanding the safety pathway and the evolutionary history of the power of touch to induce safety radically in us stemming back long before humans, right. Going all the way back to primordial mammals, all of them come together closely physically to establish safety and bonding. All of that was influential. I think the crux of it that ties it all together is the biofeedback research that started in the 1950s and 60s. Biofeedback is fascinating. For those who don't know what it is, it was the first strategy that we had with science to quantify what's happening in the body when we meditate or when we enter into states of calm. What's really interesting about biofeedback is what has been found about biofeedback that's so fascinating is you connect somebody up to a heart rate monitor and you connect them up to a respiratory rate monitor and then you put those images of their their heart rhythm and their respiratory rhythm on a screen. Mm -hmm. And so you see your EKG pattern and you see your breathing pattern. And what's interesting is that almost everyone, when they sit down in the beginning, is out of sync. Their breathing pattern and their heart rate pattern are not uh, lined up together. Mm -hmm. However, if you give people only one instruction, which is do what you need to do to match your rhythms. Within about 90 seconds, 95% of people will match their rhythms in sync. Hmm. When they match their rhythms in sync, they typically start to sync up at about six breaths per minute. And six breaths per minute, coincidentally, or probably not coincidentally at all, is the breathing pattern at which we start to enter meditative states and it's the breathing pattern at which we start to see significant increases in heart rate variability. Hmm. And so we started looking more and more at the rhythms of the heart and the lungs in meditative states, in biofeedback-induced states, in intense athletic and physical exercise states, in cognitive stress states, in all these different situations. And what we found is that there were very significant commonalities that between all the, the different states and the way the heart and the lungs look. Hmm. And so from that understanding, and then also from the understanding of the existing literature base, which had 50 to 70 papers or so exposing research subjects to different frequencies of vibration or electricity and seeing what would happen to their bodies and their mood and their performance, etc. We combined all of that basis of information with the information that I just mentioned to you about biofeedback and then figured out that there were very specific rhythms that created these reliable effects in the body. In biofeedback, the reason why biofeedback works is because of the biofeedback of visual signals, right? Mm -hmm. You see your rhythms on the screen, and the rhythms are coming from your body. They go to the screen, and then they go from the screen back to your eyes and back into your body, and then back to the screen, and then back into your body. And it's a cycle, right? And that's the biofeedback. Sure. And that increases control uh, and agency over our own bodies. Sure. It turns out the stimulus doesn't need to be visual the stimulus doesn't need to be your heart rate and your breathing rate visually presented on a screen. It mm -hmm. can be auditory. It can be tactile. Mm -hmm. 
And so we thought, well, there was very little published on this in the literature, but there were a couple papers that were critical that were that hinted that this was possible. And so very obscure work, but very well done. And so we started exploring the sense of touch very intimately with vibration, um, with using subwoofers. And this was 2016 and early 2017. And we found that with subwoofers, we were able to, to reliably change the body. It didn't work for everyone, but it worked for over 70% of people. Hmm. And then over time, we continued to iterate. And the more we iterated, as you know, going back to what you we were asking earlier, the better and more specific the effects got. Now, we are typically seeing over 95% response rates to these frequencies, depending on what your goal is. So if you want to wake up and you turn on a wake up frequency, roughly 90 to 95% of people will experience more energy and wakefulness. And similarly for focus, socializing, relaxing, meditation, recovery, sleep, etc. And so we've now characterized them into these blocks that you can experience very specific states that are the most common states we typically desire to access. And it just helps facilitate the transition into those states. And these frequencies are played on subwoofers or is this on the wristband? Oh, no, this is on the wristband. On the wristband? The, the wow, okay. Side. No, no, no. Interesting. So the wristband does have these different modes. It's not just a pause button. It's really a control surface where you can push different buttons. Yeah. Um, I can't show you the video. I can show you at least what it what it looks like, but sure. basically... And you can send um, it later and we can post it as a part of the show notes as well. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. And so what we, what we figured out in our lab studies, um, and so these are the selections. I don't know if you can see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have energy and wake up, social and open, rebuild and recover, clear and focused. So these are all kind of vibration programs that will play for some amount of time after you push the button. Right. And you could select the time and you could select the intensity of, of the vibrations. And I think we basically did, when we first developed the technology with the with subwoofers originally, we said, okay, this makes us feel different. We tried it on all our friends and family and we're like, okay, this makes a lot of people feel different. Mm-hmm. Can it work in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover study, right? A kind mm-hmm. of study that's very, very difficult to see an effect if there is no effect, mm-hmm. a real effect. And so we actually wound up doing that study in 2017, thanks to uh, Catherine Fantasi, who is the CEO of Apollo and luckily my wife. Um, and she has all the business brains of our relationship. And so I went to her in 2016 and I said, hey, we have this interesting project. Would you be interested in helping us develop the business and the commercialization aspect of it? And she helped us raise the funding to the studies ended up when the study results came back, she started the company because the results were so good. And what the results showed is that if I send you Apollo frequencies, or I send you placebo frequencies, like a cell phone buzz or a tapping, or I send you a no vibration condition, and I have you do tasks that are stressful, that your body knows how the frequencies are different without you knowing anything about them. The subjects didn't know what they were supposed to do. They didn't know whether they were getting placebo or active. And all they knew was that they were repeating the same awful math task over and over and over again. And the body, in response to the frequencies, increased heart rate variability significantly. And when we saw these increases in HRV, there was a proportionate increase in cognitive performance. Hmm. And that has not been shown before, this direct correlation between making the body calm and balanced Improving homeostasis signs and, uh, and metrics correlates directly with increased performance and efficiency of performance is in the more effort I put in, the more likely I am to do better on this task. The opposite would be futility. The more effort I'm putting in, 
the worse I do because I'm so stressed out that I can't focus, right? So you had those different programs. So did you study whether those particular patterns and programs of patterns were causing the effect? For example, the social and open one, is that tested as providing that effect? So those were tested. Some of them were tested on the cognitive performance ones. Okay. Those are listed under the clear and focused on the app. The other frequencies were tested in a different, in the same study with the same subjects, uh, also blinded and randomized. But the way we did it is we gave them roughly 30 seconds. We wanted to see how quickly can people notice a difference. Mm -hmm. And so we gave them the ability to rate how energized and how positive or negative they feel Mm -hmm. on a two-dimensional axis. So it's like from you know what I'm valence, saying. Valence and magnitude. Yeah, it's Valence and common. magnitude, right, right. Yeah. Of energy, exactly. And then we gave them basically like 20 different frequencies, mm-hmm. and they had no idea what they were. We wanted to see if we would get some reliable, uh, relatively reliable mm-hmm. um, reports from people. In 30 seconds, you feel this. Does it make you more awake and happy? Does it make you more awake and anxious? Does it make you more calm and tired uh, and feel sad? Or does it make you more some other way? Or does it make you feel nothing? Right. And so what we found is that there were very specific, reliable, subjective experiences where people would say, I feel this and it's making me tired. I feel this is making me energized and focused and happy. And so from that, we then took those frequencies and, and studied some of them in this cognitive performance trial. Going back to your question specifically about the social frequency, um, the social frequencies are really interesting because we did not realize that those frequencies were good for socializing originally. And ultimately, what we found was through our case studies, we've done over 2,000 case studies in the wild with Apollo and three clinical trials so far that were university-led and with several more that are currently ongoing. And I think what's been really interesting is seeing how people use it in the real world with our prototypes has been confirmatory of what we see in the lab studies. And we actually learned some new things. So social and open, the socializing frequencies, are one of the things that we could not have studied in the lab because it's very, very difficult to study socialization Mm -hmm. in a predictable way. So what we actually found was that people felt nice on this frequency, but what I noticed from it was creativity. People were more creative on it, they were more open-minded, and they were more... Uh, it was great for like group work kind of time, kind mm-hmm, of things. Mm-hmm. We used to call it brainstorm. And then we started using it in regular world and people were telling us that they're using it for socialization and it was completely inhibiting social anxiety for them and panic attacks. Hmm. And I saw that and I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. We should explore this more. So we started just asking people to try it and we overwhelmingly got very positive results and then that became the social frequency. That's the only one that was not tested Mm-hmm. in the lab for its stated socialization label. Um, all the other ones were tested for their stated goal. And for their stated goals, were you also looking at HRV? I mean, I'm wondering, is HRV an independent effect or is it that there's different levels of HRV or different targets that you're hitting with these different stated goals? Like in other words, you know what yeah. I mean? Like in a yeah, social situation, is your HRV different than in a focused situation? Yes. Yes. That's a great question. So I think that it's best way to think about this is that it's all part of one system Mm -hmm. The system is subdivided into many, many different parts, but it's one system, which we call the autonomic nervous system. And this system is always running in the background to regulate our balance between stress and attention and threat things that require our attention of our center of focus to be outside of ourselves. And then Things like 
recovery, meditation, um, sleep, digestion, reproduction, all of those things are balanced by the parasympathetic nervous system that is, tends to be more focused on attention directed inward to the self, in towards the body. Mm-hmm. These two parts of the, of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic stress response, the parasympathetic recovery response are always in balance. HRV is more of a global measure. It is all part of one system, the autonomic nervous system. HRV is a biometric that is the rate of change of the heartbeat over time, which is a very complicated biometric. And I don't think we have all the answers about it yet, but it's important to note that HRV, the way that we're talking about it and the way that it's used in this space is to understand how recovered we are and how balanced we are between the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. So if we're under stress, our heart rate goes up, our HRV goes down. If we're under stress, that's normal. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when that happens over time, then we experience this phenomenon called chronic stress and chronic stress causes our HRV to be low all the time. And that, and when you measure, when you see somebody that has low HRV, it's likely that they are not sleeping very well and that their parasympathetic recovery nervous system activity is not as high as it should be. Hmm. And so what we aim to do in our clinical practice is we aim to train our patients to be able to develop natural techniques like deep breathing, meditation, yoga, to reverse that balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic to be more in tune with one another such that the nervous systems can bounce back and forth more dynamically and you can adapt more fluidly to stress when it comes and then where the threat is gone, you go right back to being calm and into recovery mode again. Mm-hmm. And when people have that ability, we see that reflected in a high heart rate variability. So all of these techniques that we've mentioned, including Apollo, all boost HRV. Okay. They all boost heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is just a measure. It's, it's a great measure and probably our best measure of, of the effects of stress in the body over time. But it is the best measure that we have for looking at the balance between these nervous system components on the whole. Mm-hmm. And, but it's also it's one of our best predictors of peak performance. It's our best predictor of consistent performance and our best predictor of being resilient to stress and illness. So by boosting it, what we're showing is really not anything related to HRV, Separate from HRV, HRV is a sign that we can finally look at and say, oh, you're actually getting better. And that's one of the unique things about Apollo is it's it's the first wearable where you can actually use this device and over time track your HRV in your app or track your sleep in your app um, with other, other biometric wearables or with Apollo, you can track your sleep and circadian rhythms and you can actually see over time my HRV is going up as I use this device or I use this device more during this particular period, my HRV goes up during those times. Hmm. And you can actually track your health improving. And you can see your sleep improving over time as well, which is something that we haven't really been able to show people before. So Apollo, does it have biofeedback integrated or do you need to use an external sensor? You were mentioning it can track sleep, but heart rate would seem to be a very important measure. Are you getting that from another wearable? So there are lots of really great measures out there. Uh Heart rate is great. It's not necessary for most people to measure. The things that are most useful for most people are tracking circadian rhythms. Hmm. So circadian rhythms are your sleep and wake cycles, 
how often are we awake and active and doing stuff and how active are we when we're active and then how, how are we resting and sleeping and how much sleep are we getting and how good quality is that sleep um, when we're sleeping. That all reflects how well we feel the next day and sleep is the single most important factor to boosting HRV, which is very interesting. It's the single most important place where we recover. I'm sorry. Can you ask that? that uh... Yeah, no. Well, I was just thinking, I was thinking back to that study about um, biofeedback and you had oh, people yeah, looking yeah. at a screen and they could see their breathing and their heart rate. Right. And so it would seem like if you didn't have a screen and you only had wearables, if there was a way to display breathing and heart rate in such a way that was prompted you to synchronize them in the same way, then you may be able oh, to use oh. the device to enter those flow states again. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I was actually, I thought you were asking a different question. No worries. I'm glad I asked you again. So what is really important to know is that based on what we were talking about earlier, the body doesn't need visual cues or auditory cues in addition to the vibration. Haptics alone is sufficient. Sure. And so, because the skin is so sensitive. So if I provide you with a vibration, for instance, through Apollo, that gets you into a state of deep focus when you're stressed out, what that shows you is that you have the ability to get into a state of deep focus when you're stressed out. Your body is inherently retraining itself, what we call from the bottom up, from the body to the brain, rather than from the brain to the body, which was the traditional way of learning called top down. Mm-hmm. Your body is now being trained from the bottom up to understand what it feels like to naturally be in a deep focused state like biofeedback while you're working and otherwise stressed out. So from that standpoint, you don't need to have real time visuals of heart rate and respirations and all these other biometrics to get the benefits of biofeedback or coherence or resonant states in the body from Apollo or meditative presentness. All of that happens simply with the tactile stimulation. Sure. But to get the same effects, this tactile stimulation would still have to be based on biofeedback. It just wouldn't be visual, right? Like if you, for example, if you could... Oh, no, so it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. It, it doesn't? No, because it turns out that we're a lot... It's because we're a lot more similar than we are different. Okay, I see. So when you, so that's the fundamental principle that all of this is based on, is that we are all human first, mm-hmm. right? We are actually much more fundamentally similar than we are different. When we look at each other, we always are, and because of our training and the way we're taught, we always perceive differences first. We perceive unfamiliarity from strangers before we perceive familiarity. But we all have the same core needs. You and I might look completely different and may have completely different preferences in life, But we all need air, food, water, sleep, and love to have sustaining, sustainable, rewarding lives. Mm -hmm. That goes without saying. And so based on those principles and the understanding of biofeedback, what we see in biofeedback is the same thing, that the body will 95% of people naturally enter meditative-like states by just telling them, hey, match your heart rate and your breathing rhythms. Mm -hmm. That is pretty powerful because it shows that anybody pretty much can get into one of these states just by trying to match their rhythms. The body tries to match rhythms. That is the key. Mm-hmm. And that's what we know intuitively from music. When you go to a concert, you see everybody like bopping their heads and their bodies to sure. the same song. Why would 100,000 people like the same kind of music? Probably more because it's hitting a fundamental rhythm with our bodies that we all share. Yeah. And so that's what really, I think is really interesting and different about Apollo is it doesn't need to be customized to hit most people and give them what they want. However, 
there are closed loop features that are built into Apollo that will learn about each user over time and personalize the experience for you. Okay. So, and we'll, we'll collect that data from other biometric wearables like Aura and like Aura, Fitbit, anything that goes into Apple HealthKit, we can collect data from to start. We also have an accelerometer on the Apollo device itself to collect sleep and wakefulness and activity data that gives us information about your circadian rhythms. That is very important because when we understand what your good days are like and when we understand what your hard days are like and we understand what good sleep is like and what disruptive sleep is like, mm-hmm. what that allows us to do is predict based on your movements when you're moving in such a way that's likely to result in you becoming vertical in the middle of the night, right? If you typically want to sleep, you know, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m., but then at 3 a.m. at certain days, you're always more likely to move in a certain way that results in you getting up in the middle of the night, and then that results in you using Apollo more the next day, that's a sign to us that we can start to use those data points to anticipate when you're going to wake up before you even are aware of it, and then turn the device on automatically to help you fall back asleep in the middle of the night before you wake up. Mm -hmm. There's no intervention for that right now. There's nothing that anybody that we have access to, technologically or otherwise, that can help us fall back asleep before we know we're waking up. With advents in AI and neuroscience technology, we can now do this. And it will be a reality in the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, we will actually be able to anticipate people's waking up at night and helping them fall back asleep simply by combining this into a closed loop system. That's fascinating. One of the things in haptics that we study in haptic perception is the effects of attention. So we find that you're more likely to be able to notice a stimulus, describe a stimulus, or understand its meaning if you're attending to it. And, you know, there's use cases where we need to create haptic effects for people who are not attending to it. So, for example, if you had a driver alert where the person is focused on a primary task and you're Mm -hmm. using haptics to intervene and pull them away from that task and redirect their attention You'll design that haptic effect very differently than one where you're engaged and focused on like a social interaction and you're adding a haptic effect to that social interaction, let's say. And so I'm wondering in your case, especially with with the story about meditation and this attention on the breath that you need to hone over the course of many years, and then you have the biofeedback studies where you're focused on changing your HRV, how does the effect of attention work into this wristband like does the wristband grab your attention or does it work better when you're attending to it how does that all work so that's a really excellent question and i really like that you go back to attention because attention is is the you know center of all of this and ability to control our attention is really the way that we become more masterful and develop more agency over our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, attention is the first and one of the most important things to, to skills to learn. Mm. The way that I would describe Apollo in terms of attention is, have you gone bowling? Sure. <laughs> have, you, have you ever bowled with bumpers? Yeah. So Apollo is like bumpers on your bowling alley. Okay. Okay. Imagine you sit down to do a task. Your attention's the bowling ball. Yeah. You're in control of it until you start doing that task. And then all of these thoughts start to come to your head. Like maybe I left the stove on or I forgot to do X, Y, and Z, or I have a hundred million other things to do. And people start texting you. And that's like the, the lane in the bowling alley when you throw your attention. If the attention is the bowling ball, you throw your bowling ball attention down the alley 
and you don't know how properly taken care of that lane is. The wood could be warped. The wood could be not oiled or greased properly. It could be greased too much, right? And your ball could slip and slide and go all over the place and miss all the pins or go into the gutter. What are the bumpers? The bumpers create boundaries on either side to bring the ball back into center mm-hmm. so that at least you get close to center and hitting something. Mm-hmm. Apollo is the bumpers. When your attention deviates to thinking about stress, to thinking about how much you don't want to do, do what you're doing, any of those things which take us out of the present, Apollo is the bumpers that center us and bring us back in and creates this attentional structure that allows us to constantly be brought back into our bodies. And what's really interesting is people, when they use Apollo and they're in deep focus or deep socialization or whatever it is, they don't even notice that it's on anymore until their attention deviates Hmm. or they start having negative intrusive thoughts and then it brings them back into their bodies. Hmm. And so that's really the idea is that Apollo is delivered sort of what we call at the sensory threshold, which is right when you're barely able to perceive it, when you or, or you're able to perceive it when you pay attention to it, yep. but when you pay attention to something else, it kind of fades into the background. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's a great answer. That makes a lot of sense. So that's been tuned really precisely then. Yes, and, and again, it's personal though, right? Because when you're on a plane and you're surrounded by immense amounts of vibration, then you're going to sure. want your intensity level to be a little higher than if you're sitting quietly in your bed trying to fall asleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've allowed some some variability in the app for that as well. So when you say that it's playing frequencies, what exactly do you mean? Are you talking about the oscillation frequency of the vibration or is it a frequency of a pattern, a pulse pattern? Or when you talked about the cat purring, there's obviously kind of an overall frequency to the speed of the purr, but that doesn't really refer to the frequency of vibration. It's something larger. Do you know what I mean? Like what is the Yeah. What is the unit? So it's both. Okay. Yeah, it's both for Apollo. And I think part of the reason is it's not like frequency is interesting, but frequency is a tone, right? It's like playing one key on the piano. Mm -hmm. It's a tone at a certain hertz range that's just one note. Yes. What happens when you play two keys on the piano or you alternate playing multiple keys is what you get is called rhythm. Mm -hmm. Rhythm is a synergistic outcome of multiple frequencies coming together. Mm Mm-hmm. It's bigger than the sum of individual parts. It's not just two tones. It's two tones that create something completely new oftentimes if they're done properly. And the way that Apollo works is is we design these very functional rhythms that are based on the rhythm that your heart and lungs gets into when you meditate, the rhythm that your heart and lungs typically gets into when you fall asleep or when you focus intensely on a physical or mental task. That rhythm is different in each of those states. And so we deliver a frequency to the body that is basically like a song composed for your skin mm-hmm. receptors rather than for your auditory receptors in your ear. Okay. It's a multiple sort of complex layered pattern okay. that creates a rhythm that your body knows what to do with. That's interesting too. Okay. So I have another question about effects. I was interested to read that some of your work on psychedelic psychotherapy was looking at gene expression. And I'm wondering if you think Apollo might have similar effects and and whether you plan to study those. That's a good question as well. And this is one of my favorite topics because, again, my background isn't always trying to figure out how things work, not just Mm -hmm. showing that they work. From our current understanding of genetics and gene expression, it is very likely that every experience we have in our lives affects our gene expression. This was not known for sure. It was suspected, but it wasn't known until the last 20 years or so. 
Uh, there's some incredible work by Dr. Rachel Yehuda out of Mount Sinai in the Bronx VA, along with a number of other amazing scientists, showed that if you look at the what we call epigenetics, which is the markings on the DNA that tell a cell what to do, mm-hmm. right? So every cell in our bodies pretty much has the same DNA code, but your skin looks like skin and functions like skin, and your brain looks like brain and functions like brain, because even though they have exactly the same code as the backbone, only certain parts of that code are allowed to come out mm-hmm. and be expressed. So in the brain cells, only brain cell proteins are allowed to be made, which makes them look and function like brain cells in the skin. For the most part, only skin cell proteins are allowed to be made, and the brain cell proteins are suppressed. Mm-hmm. And that's called epigenetic regulation. Epigenetic meaning on the DNA. So what Rachel Yehuda showed was that if you look at people who are survivors of severe trauma, and then you look at their children and their children's children, what you find is that their children's children going all the way down multiple generations, even though they've been raised in relatively safe environments and not exposed to severe trauma, they still have an increased risk of PTSD and depression and anxiety disorders. And in some cases, metabolic disorder, diabetes, obesity, uh, hoarding, really interesting, strange stuff that you wouldn't expect intuitively. Mm -hmm. What's been shown now is that there are markings on the epigenetic code of stress response genes that correlate directly with these findings clinically. Mm -hmm. And and these are passed on over generations. It's a little bit scary. At the same time, it is hopeful because if trauma, which is an intense, meaningful, negative experience or many, is creating expression pattern changes to our stress and reward response genes and inflammatory response genes in our bodies on a whole body level Mm -hmm. from just one or multiple experiences, then it's extraordinarily likely that situations that reverse the clinical symptoms of trauma could reverse the epigenetic level of the coding of that trauma on the stress and reward response and inflammatory response genes. Interesting. And so that's what we're looking at in our study with Yale and USC and Mount Sinai and MAPS and uh, a couple other groups. Imperial College, I think, is joining us as well. And we're expanding out to include some other partnerships. But the idea being that psychedelic medicines and Apollo and good psychotherapy and human touch and soothing music and massage, all of these experiences are intense, meaningful, positive experiences, one or many. Mm -hmm. And we see that these practices, when used the way they are intended to be used, create long lasting changes that can last in subjects from days, weeks, months, and in the case of psychedelic medicines, years, Mm -hmm. even potentially pass on to future generations. If this is happening with trauma, and we know that trauma is causing these changes, chances are it's also happening on the epigenetic level. Mm. The question is why? Why and how do all of these psychedelic medicines and things like Apollo, why are they all so effective at treating PTSD or depression on short order? And how, if they're all so molecularly or mechanistically different, how is it possible they are inducing similar epigenetic changes? So that's exactly what we're looking for in our study. That's in over a thousand subjects who are exposed to all these different medicines and then also exposed to Apollo. Because the fundamental theory is that it's not the medicine that makes these experiences encoded into our bodies. The medicine may be accelerating or catalyzing the healing process. But what's actually seems to be happening is it's the intention and the belief that we can heal by feeling safe, 
that allows us to access these states of deeper, more powerful healing. Mm -hmm. And so psychedelic medicines are fascinating, like MDMA in the phase three trials is fascinating because it radically accelerates that process for people with severe PTSD. It turns out that we see the same findings from preliminary studies with people with PTSD um, using Apollo in clinical trials. And so they're experiencing rapid relief because they're saying, I feel safe. So we're going to be looking at in this trial, not only comparing people before and after psychedelic experiences that are based around safety in clinical settings, we're also going to be looking at psychedelic experiences from folks with trauma outside of clinical settings and like traditional tribal settings that have been doing it the same way for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And then comparing that to meditators before and after, comparing that to Apollo users who have been using Apollo for a few months before and after who've had trauma. And then comparing that to people who do CBT with exposure, you know, that psychotherapy technique we're talking about earlier, which is one of the leading psychotherapy techniques for PTSD and seeing what are the similarities, what are the differences, and then comparing those same findings to the results in stem cells without any ceremony because stem cells know, they know no environment like we do. Uh, they don't have the complexity of human connection. And so if we see what the medicines and the vibration are doing to the stem cells and in humans, we can start to really parse out exactly what is medicine's role, what is the role of belief and intention in healing, and how do we really optimize both to understand the power of mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual health as a more comprehensive sense of self. Wow, that's a very ambitious goal. That's awesome, bringing everything together like that. So Apollo is really, it's, it's pretty, you know, straightforward. It, it vibrates. You've, you've put a lot of thought and effort into the vibration patterns, but it just seems to me that going forward with exotic materials and, you know, smart clothing and all kinds of things that are happening, you could go deep on like designing more immersive experiences that would provide the same kind of effects as Apollo, but maybe even better. Have you thought at all about like how this approach to, I guess you'd call it like tactile stimulation based HRV effects. Like if, if you took that to the nth degree, what might that look like? I think that would look like Apollo software in most of the things that we interact with in our day to day. Mm, mm -hmm. So right now, this is the very first time that a wearable like Apollo has ever existed. It's the first time that a wearable Effect, in a lot of ways, a wearable therapy that actually makes us better and improves our body and our body's resilience and homeostasis. It's the first time that's existed. So we had to make a wearable hardware to some extent in order to show the world that what we're talking about and scientifically is actually possible and feasible and people will use it. Mm -hmm. However, the magic of Apollo is in the software. The hardware is relatively simple, but the software is what allows us to understand why are you different than me? How does your body respond differently than my body? And how do we curate and customize things specifically to you? So the way I see that moving forward is imagine that you're an Apollo user or you're not an Apollo user and you have a flight to China and you want to sleep for half of that flight and you want to work for the other half, but your circadian rhythms are totally off. You've been working like crazy. You're a busy entrepreneur and you're flying to China. So your jet lag is crazy and your, your rhythms are totally off balance. Yeah. And imagine being able to just plug in and say, I want to wake up so I can work now and be focused, or I want to be calm and fall asleep. And you could literally just press a button on your screen on the plane or on your phone and activate your seat mm -hmm. and your seat 
could have everything in it needed to give you access to whatever state you want at any time during that flight. Similarly with cars, you could put your kids to sleep in the back seat while keeping yourself awake and calm while driving Mm -hmm. on long trips. Mm -hmm. For truckers, it could be a really huge thing. Um, There's all these different applications that that we foresee Apollo uh, Apollo being able to power in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that that will happen is through a connected software platform, Mm -hmm. which is what we've been spending so much time building. The hardware is exciting, but the connected software platform and the way that that platform will interface with data to create immersive, customized, or curated experiences for people will be possibly the first time that deep learning neural network AI has actually been used to improve human health. That's a, it's a huge task, but it's very, very exciting to be able to see how this is developing and, and to sort of gradually move in that direction. That's amazing. That's a great vision. So we've been through so much. I mean, I understand kind of what you're up to now. Is there anything else you want to say? I think we covered a lot. I guess the last thing I'll say is that psychedelic medicines are fantastic and they are wonderful treatments when used used properly in the clinical setting to treat very severe illnesses. They are currently still illegal, except for ketamine, and they are currently very expensive and difficult to access. Similarly, deep breathing and meditation and mindfulness are the cheapest things in the world to access because we all have them within ourselves at all times but they can take thousands of hours of practice to master, to use in real time. And so Apollo is really our, our way of presenting the world with a scalable, accessible, affordable way to access these states and to access peak performance and peak recovery, as you were saying earlier, more effectively and to help us all feel just a little bit better. Yeah. It's funny, every time you say deep breathing or meditation or something, I find myself taking a deep breath and then <laughs> like three seconds later, my mind wanders off. So I think I need right. those uh, bowling alley bumpers that you're talking about. I think we all do. I mean, the human attention span, I think, is shorter than it's ever been. Yeah. It's like three to six seconds. Yeah. That is not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, David. I really appreciate it. Where can we uh, follow you online? Uh, so you can follow me online on Twitter at Dave Rabin or on Instagram at Dr. David Rabin. And you can also check us out at ApolloNeuro.com or ApolloNeuroscience.com. And you can get access to the Apollo wearable before anyone else. So please check us out and let us know if you have any questions. And we're always happy to hear from folks. So you actually can order it today. It's released. You can order it today. It'll be shipping in January. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much and uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at DaveBirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2020, Dave Birnbaum.